Well, good morning. Glad to be with you here today as we welcome in the Advent, the Christmas season, and start our new series, He Shall Be Called. We're going to be talking about uh, some of the names of Jesus. And speaking of names, we know that names matter. I think we have a a little bit easier in our culture today when it comes to naming like kids. For example, in in cultures in the past, typically you have a name and it also means something significant. You got to make sure all that works out. I feel like for us today, we name our kids either based off of a family name or because we like it, right? And so for us, the bar is like, just make sure whatever name you give your child, is something that they will not be made fun of, right? Because that's what you just make sure they don't get made fun of and you're good. Now, however, you got to be cognizant of if you have a daughter who might change her name in the future, you got to be cognizant of like whatever name I give her, make sure it could work for like with worst possible scenarios. So for example, I looked up some names of some women who uh, got married and had their last name changed and then their name no longer worked out maybe the way that it had previously. So for example, uh, one woman after she got married, her last name changed and she went by the name of Anita Mann. And so that's, you know... Not the best. Uh, I, uh, another woman whose name was, after she got married, her name was changed. Her name was Eileen Wright. Now, you might be thinking, well, I mean, I guess that's kind of funny, but you might be thinking, like, what's funny with that? Like, what's not the problem? There's not much of a problem except for the fact that she ran as a Democrat for Congress about seven years ago. And so then that doesn't work out great. Another woman, after she got married, her last name changed, and she went by the name of Lois Price, which also isn't... Uh, it's not the best. Uh, one woman got married, this was years ago, uh, her last name changed, and so her name was Helen Back. And uh, after about 40 years of marriage, her husband looked at her one day and said, that's exactly how these past 40 years have felt for me. Uh, so that's probably not the best. I don't know if I can make that joke here in church. Uh, I had a friend in middle school, his name was Parker Ennis, which you might be like, what's, there's nothing wrong with that. And there isn't, except when you take the first initial with his last name, then it's not that funny if you're a boy in middle school, particularly when the yearbook comes out and you have P and then his last name, Parker Ennis. And so if you're like, how does that work? Well, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, and then lastly, I looked up a guy who died a few years ago. This is actually really unfortunate because this was his name his whole life. His name was Mo Lester. And so that was probably not like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Right? So names matter. So I, I bring that up because we're going to be looking at this question this morning and in, in this series in particular. And that's this. What names come to mind when you think about God? Like when you think about God, what do you think about? Are they positive names? Are they names of warmth or encouragement? Are they far off? Are they distant? Are they judgmental? What names come to mind uh, when you think about God? And we're going to be looking at some of those names in this series. And so today, uh, this whole series is based off Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Um, if you have a Bible, you can flip there. However, uh, we're going to be in a few passages today, and they'll all be on the screen. So if you just want to read along on the screen, that is fine as well. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet who lived in a uh, Judea, Jerusalem area. Uh, he wrote, writes this book in the Old Testament about 700 years before Jesus uh, comes onto the scene. Uh, when Isaiah was a prophet for Israel, it was a part of Israel's history when things were not going well. Uh, Israel had actually at this point broken up into two nations. You had Israel, the, Isra- the nation of Israel in the north and the nation of Judah in the south where Jerusalem was located. This is where Isaiah spent most of his life. Uh, <coughs> the kings of Israel were often terrible and the kings of Judah were often terrible as well, although they had a few good one mixed in, a good ones mixed in. Now, what's interesting, when we read prophecies in the Old Testament, 
is that the vast majority of them actually had practical implications for the people at that time. They weren't just things that were far off. They weren't sure they were going to mean. And Isaiah 9, 6 is one of those things that it actually had practical implications uh, for the kingdoms at that time, but also in the same way was referring to this Messiah that would come. In fact, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples and first Peter in the New Testament writes how the prophets would also would often marvel at what they had written because they had practical implications at the time, but even they were like, I wonder what this might mean for the future. And this is one of those times. So in Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, here is what the prophet Isaiah writes. He says, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father and prince of peace. And so in this next four weeks, we're going to look at each one of those names and see how does that apply to Jesus and how does that apply to us today. Uh, To this morning, we're going to kick off with a wonderful counselor. What does that mean for Jesus to be our wonderful counselor? Now, the most of uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so the Hebrew phrase for the word a wonderful counselor is Pele Yoez. And it can be literally translated this way. Pele uh, could be translated a really good soccer player. Some of you? No? Okay. First service thought it was funny, so I was like, I'll use it again. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Pele can be literally translated beyond understanding, incomprehensible, and it has kind of positive overtures to that name, to that uh, word. And then Yoez is counselor. In other words, that this Messiah that would come, and for us, the Messiah that already has come, would be uh, a counselor who is magnificent and mighty and beyond understanding and good in love towards us. Now, when we hear the word counselor, I think most of us probably think of a counselor where you go and sit on a couch and you tell them all their problems and they empathize with you and they give you some tips on what to do based on where you're at in life. And, and that is partially what a counselor does. However, for the original readers of this passage, what would have more likely come to their mind is a king in his court. A king would have counselors and advisors that would come and give them directions based on everything that is going on in the kingdom. And so for us, it's this idea that God, that this Messiah is a wonderful, all-wise, almighty, all-powerful God who is good and loves us and has come to give us hope, direction, and healing. That is what he came to do. And we see that, for example, in Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, uh, the context of this passage is that how this Messiah, how this Jesus has come, and in him we have rest. And he says this in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. Now, I think we sometimes forget about how actually incredible it is that you and I actually have access to the God, the King of the entire universe. I mean, think of it this way. Think of someone that you highly respect, maybe uh, some, someone that's famous or somebody in your field that's really good at what they do. If you were to meet that person, you might be intimidated. You might not know what to say. And yet God is supreme above all of those things. And because of Jesus, because he came and gave his life for us, we have that direct access to God. I love what Tim Keller, who's a pastor and theologian in New York City, he says it this way, that the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. 
Why? Because one, the child doesn't know any better, and two, because it's your dad, and that's just what you do. Now, for us, it's not that we don't know any better, but we have a God who himself came, not because he needed something from us, not because he wanted something from us, but simply out of love and kindness towards us, came and made it possible for us to have the direct access to him and a personal relationship from him to him through Jesus, which means that God is not just some distant, far-off God. You can think of it this way, that there's nothing like someone who can actually understand what you've gone through. Like if you're suffering or if you need advice, like there's, there's nothing like someone who's actually been where you are that, th- that can speak to the situation that you're in. Like So for me, there's a couple examples. So for, for, for one, as a pastor, as someone who planted a church, started a church, like when I'm around particularly older, wiser pastors, there's just, there's just something about the encouragement, the warmth, I don't have to explain everything. They don't have to say, how, here's how everything is going, because they understand the joys and the discouragements and the frustrations of ministry, right? Because they've been where I am, there's a, there's a connectedness there that doesn't have to be explained. And for you, maybe a season of life that you're in or the job that you have when you meet with people who have been where you are before, again, you don't have to explain every single nuance of how you're feeling and what's going on because they understand. There's an instant connection that is only there if someone actually understands what it's like to be where you are. Or a second example, for me is many of you know my story, losing my father to a suicide. And one of the God's graces to us is that he does not waste our pain. And so because of someone, uh, lost someone very close to me to a suicide, it has now allowed me to speak and to help and to be in situations when other people uh, walk through suicide, that I can meet with them and they don't have to explain how they're feeling or their shame or their regret or their pain, that there's something unique about suicide. And as someone who has been there, there's a connection there where they don't have to explain everything, that we can get down into how they're feeling because I've experienced that. In other words, here's what we need to know as we consider how our Messiah is a wonderful counselor. What we need to know is that God cares about your suffering. Right? God cares about your suffering. He's not some far off distant, doesn't care. And we know this, and we'll say this often throughout this next month because it's one of a great reminder for me that Christmas is a reminder that God actually cares. You may not know why you're dealing with what you're dealing with, but it isn't because he doesn't care because if he didn't care, he wouldn't have come. And the good news about all this, particularly if you've been with us these last few weeks as we uh, were focusing on the resurrection of Jesus, is that this idea that, that Jesus cares for us and loves us and cares about our suffering is not just some feel-good story that we hope is true beyond a, with, 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 with a bunch of doubts in our mind. In other words, that the incarnation that Jesus actually comes proves that this is true. This is not some feel-good story that we hope is true, that he came, that he actually died for us, and he defeated death in his resurrection that shows that this is not just a feel-good story, but it is true and has practical applications in our life, that God cares about our suffering, and we know that because he came. Now, here's why it's important for us to know. Because God knows what your suffering is like. In other words, he knows what it is like to suffer. Again, he's not just somebody, although because he is God, intellectually he could just know all things and that would have worked because he is actually God. He doesn't just know it, but he's experienced it himself, that he came and was rejected and uh, experienced uh, homelessness and beating and not having money and how people, the creation that he made rejected and turned their uh, face to him. And he never did, unlike us, never did a single thing to deserve it. He knows what it's like to suffer, not just because he knows about it, but he came and he experienced it on our behalf. It reminds me, I don't know if you're familiar, if you've seen the movie uh, Good Will Hunting. It's a movie of basically a troubled genius who is really smart. He's really intelligent. He's a genius and he gets into trouble a lot. And eventually he gets into trouble again. And one of the things that he has to do is he has to meet with a therapist. 
And the therapist is played uh, by Robin Williams. And at one point in the movie, again, uh, good, uh, Will Hunting is being a jerk and he's doing all these things. And he, and he sees this painting that the therapist painted and he tears it to shreds and he kind of mocks the, the therapist and all sorts of things. And then later on in the movie, there's this scene. It's an iconic scene. They're sitting on a bench. And Robin Williams is explaining to him how, you know, basically he was affected by what Will Hunting said about his painting until he realized something. He said, I realized this and I haven't thought about you since. He said, I realize essentially that you haven't experienced life. You think you know things, but you haven't actually experienced it. So for example, uh, Will Hunting has never been out of Boston. And so he gives them examples of what the difference between knowing something and actually experiencing. He says, for example, we could talk about art. And he says, you could tell me all about Michelangelo and where he grew up and what of his paintings means and all his biography, but you've never been to the Sistine Chapel. You have no idea what it's like to look up at the marvelous painting to smell what that church is like. You can read about it, but you've never experienced it. He says, we can talk about women. He says, but you have never woken up next to a woman in the morning truly happy. You have no idea what it's like to actually love and sacrifice for someone that you care about. Or he said, we could talk about war and you could uh, read Shakespeare or read a book on war. He said, but you have no idea what war is actually like. He said, you've never fought in a war. You've never hold your, your, friend, your best friend to your chest as he is dying in your midst. You have no idea what war is actually like. Or then he gives the example of love. He said, we could talk about love and you can quote me a sonnet. He says, but you have no idea what it's like to actually be totally vulnerable with a woman. To be married for 40 years, right, and have your wife die of cancer, and you be sitting in the hospital room because the doctors know that the term visiting hours don't apply to you. That you have no idea what it's actually like. And what we need to be reminded of that Jesus, our Messiah, our wonderful counselor, is not just sitting up there being like, all oh, that stinks for you, that he's actually experienced suffering and pain on our behalf. Isaiah 53 uh, talks about, again, the Messiah to come and how uh, the things that he would experience, that Jesus would experience for us. He says it this way, that he, Jesus, the Messiah, was a despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like people, someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pain. But in return, we regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all, every single one of us, went astray. We all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him, Jesus the Messiah, for the iniquity of us all. Why is that significant? Because I think if we're not careful, sometimes we think of God as this angry God in the sky that must be appeased, that we must do all the right things or else he's going to be mad at us or we're going to fall short. And instead, the reality is that God came for us, not because he needed us, but purely out of love. That he doesn't just know what it's like to suffer because he is God, but he experienced mistreatment on our behalf. In other words, that Jesus is a wonderful counselor, not just in word, but also in deed. He's know what, he knows what it's like to suffer, and he came to bring us healing. And so because of that, there are three things that we need to do, if this is true, if this wonderful counselor has come, for us to actually experience the healing that he brings. And here's the first thing, that we need to be honest with the counselor. 
right? And you know this whether you meet with a counselor or have a good friend that you're talking through something with, right? Unless you are actually honest about what you're going through, what you're struggling with, what you're facing, you can't actually face the problem with any degree of success. And it reminds me of the story in John chapter 4. If you may be familiar with it, you may not be, but it's the story where essentially Jesus finds himself at a well in the middle of a day, and there's also a woman there, which is pretty uncommon because they would go in the morning or in the evening because it was really hot to draw water and bring it back to the town in the middle of the day. But the reason that this woman was there is because she was essentially an outcast of, of her town, that she was kind of the lowest of the low, that she apparently didn't have very many friends, and she was ashamed of herself. And long story short, they get to talking. Jesus tells her that he is the, the spring of life and all these sorts of things. And he come, comes to say that he basically tells her that you've been married five times and the husband you're with now is not your husband. So basically, Jesus exposes her past, right? Exposes some of her sin. And in that moment, she has the decision to make. Is she going to justify her actions or is she going to be honest about what she has done? And what we sometimes miss when we read the story is that we don't understand that if we were her, we honestly probably would have made many of the same decisions that she had made. Why? Because in that culture, if you're a woman and we're not married, things would not go well for you. So the fact that she had five husbands was probably sometimes purely out of survival. That if we were in her situation, we often, honestly, most of us probably would have done the same thing. And so she could have said all of those things when Jesus brought up her situation. But what did she do? Instead, she says, you know what? You're right. She's honest about what she's experienced. She goes back into her town to tell everybody that this man has told her everything that she has ever done, and many of them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Why? She experienced healing because she was honest. So let me just ask this question for us today. What do you need to be honest with God about? What do you need to be honest with God about? Maybe there's a, a sin struggle. Maybe there's something you're embarrassed with. Maybe there's something you're ashamed of. Maybe there's something that you want to work through, and, and we need to be honest with God. This is not just like, I'm going to pray about it once, or I'm going to tell God about it once and forget about it, but, but what do we need to say, God, here's where I need you. Here's where I am. Where do you and I need to be honest with God about? Because we cannot experience hope, and we cannot experience healing if we're going to justify what's going on instead of being honest with our Creator who actually loves us. I love what it says in Psalm 55, verse 22. The psalmist writes this. He says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. That he is a good God that will walk with us in the midst of even self-inflicted pain and suffering. And what this means for us is this, especially when we talk about being honest, that God is not surprised. Like God is not actually surprised at what you're dealing with. You just have to be honest with him. I, I like to think of it this way. Finley, our oldest daughter, she's four and a half, and she's of the age now where like she'll get a new toy or she'll draw a picture or she'll like do something in the house and she'll tell us. And sometimes, you know, Christina and I would tell us like, yeah, we know, you know, where you got that toy from, grandma, obviously, because they buy you everything. Or like, we know who drew the picture or we know that you actually, you know, took, broke this or made this mess. And so sometimes she'll say, how do you know everything? So how do you know everything? To which Christina will respond by saying that she doesn't know everything. And I respond by saying, I just do. You know, I don't, <laughs> just how things work out, right? But she, like, she thinks we know everything just because she's a child and we, we know what's going on in her life. And so for us, being honest with God, the good news about it is he already knows. And he's inviting us into a relationship to actually experience the help and healing. So the first thing we need to do is be honest with where we're at. And then after that, we need to do this. We need to listen to the counselor. We need to actually listen to what he has to say. In Mark chapter 9, uh, it's the story of the disciples. They're with Jesus, 
uh, sorry, Peter, James, and John, so Jesus' closest three disciples, and they go up onto a mountain, onto a hill, and basically it's, it's the transfiguration, but for our purposes today, basically a lot of really cool stuff happened, and God's glory was shown, and Jesus looked awesome, and Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament prophets, appear on the scene, and Peter, James, and John are like, what do we do? Do we need to build tents for everybody? And all these things happen so that this could happen. In Mark chapter 9, verse 7, it says this. It says, a cloud appeared overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Saying, this is the Messiah, this is God incarnate on earth, listen and do what he says, because he is the one that actually can bring us hope and healing. And the reality of the situation is, particularly when we're dealing with maybe certain circumstances or, or decisions that we have to make, that often God is clearer than we like to think, but we do actually have to seek him. That it can't, sometimes as I talk with people, we get frustrated because we, we, things aren't going the way that we want them to go. And then we find out we actually only prayed about it once. So we actually only asked God about it once. And what God's saying is, no, no, no. I want you to seek and be in relationship with me. That we need to uh, use the graces that God gives us. For example, uh, prayer, being in communion with God, reading our Bible, a community, whether it's a local church or a community group, or having people in our life that we trust and respect that God can speak through or speak to us through, that he has given us things to do in order for us to, to follow the direction that he might be giving us. And I think sometimes we miss out on what actually listening to God because we're not quite sure what we're supposed to do when it's because we actually haven't spent time pursuing him. I like to think of it this way. When I was in high school, I took a, a AP music theory class. It's the only AP class I ever took. And the only reason I really was able to take it is because I took piano lessons since I was a kid. And so I knew theory really well. And I did really well in the class except for one part of it. Every Friday, we would have uh, uh, hearing, uh, listening quizzes, or hearing quizzes, or whatever we call them, where our teacher, there was 10 of us in the class, would play, basically, he would play four notes on the piano, and we had to transcribe, we had to write out everything that he played. And I, would, I could only ever really write out the top note, like the bass note, the middle notes, I was struggling. What was the problem was, everyone else in the class was either in band and orchestra, I was not in anything. And so although my intellectual knowledge of music was high, actually training my ear to hear, it had not been trained. And so I struggled with it. I struggled with it. And so the question for us must, might be this. Well, why then is it so much work? Like if God cares for us, it has, it has good plans for us, if he is wise and he knows uh, where he wants to lead us, why is it so much work for Jesus to tell us what to do? And here's the reason. Because Jesus is inviting us into a relationship with him. In other words, we are more concerned about our circumstance and he is more concerned about us. We are more concerned about getting this thing done so we can move on to the next thing. And he is more concerned about us actually trusting and knowing, having faith and having a relationship with him. And he often uses our circumstances, if we will let him, to draw us closer to him. We're more focused on the circumstance. He's more focused on us, which is why he says, do these things and follow after me. I love what, again, John chapter 10, Jesus talking to his disciples and some of the religious leaders, he says this, he says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And it would have been this image, particularly in their culture, they would have known this kind of right away, that the shepherds would train their sheep to know and follow only their voice. And the reason the sheep would do that is because they would learn and they would hear and they would listen. And he's saying that you actually need to follow and, and, and listen to what I have to say. Because here's what we know, right? That there is a difference between just hearing somebody and like hearing like noises and actually listening to them. 
And Jesus is inviting us to hear and actually listen. Like, for example, uh, you know, oftentimes when Christina and I go on a trip out of town, she'll like run through this checklist thing of like, make sure I don't forget everything or whatever. And I normally don't listen because I'm like, I hear, but I'm like, yeah, whatever. I got it. Let's just go. Right. And about our, our second year of marriage, we were, we were living in Wilmington at the time, and one of my good friends was getting married here in Raleigh. And, uh, and so we drove up, it was a Friday morning, uh, we drove up and uh, we hung out all day. Well, I, was, I was in the wedding party, so she stayed with her parents, and I was hanging out with all the grooms and whatever. And it comes, it's like 10 o'clock at night, and we finally all, after we were done doing it, whatever we do, we go to the apartment that we were staying at or whatever, and we, we bring all the stuff in. And I noticed that I, I brought in gray dress pants instead of the, the navy ones I was supposed to bring. And my, my friend who was getting married sometimes got angry quite quickly. He noticed they had the wrong pants. And so he takes them off the hanger and he throws them against the door. And he's like, what are you doing? You brought the wrong pants. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is not good, right? I didn't listen because Christina clearly said, make sure you bring the right pants. And I'm like, whatever. So I didn't listen. Now, here's the thing. Being the nice groomsman and friend that I am, I rectified the situation, okay? Like I wouldn't, I didn't let, I didn't show up with the wrong pants. What I did is I lovingly called Christina at 10 o'clock at night and said, I need the pants. Can you get them? And so her and her mom drove to Wilmington and drove back, got back around 2 or 2.30 a.m. And I had the pants the next day, right? So I fixed the situation. Everything was fine, right? But what happened, right? I heard, but I didn't listen. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to do, that there is freedom, that he might, he's not going to ride out in the sky and do this, but he's inviting us into a relationship with him. So we need to be honest, and we need to listen, and then thirdly, we need to do what the counselor actually says. We need to do what he actually says to do. Uh, last passage I'll read, Mark chapter 10. Uh, Jesus is confronted by, it's the, it's the story of the rich young ruler, basically. He's a young Jewish man, had a lot of money, finds out that Jesus is in town, and he basically asks Jesus what he should do about something, and here's what happens. Verse 17, as he, talking about Jesus, uh, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So he quotes back to him some of the 10 commandments that this man would have undoubtedly known. He responds by saying, he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, it's all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now he asked this, not because it's a blanket statement for everybody to sell everything, but because he knew that this man's heart was not actually after him. And he says this, verse 22, but he, this young man, was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. So it wasn't about actually Jesus, it was about what he could actually get from him. And I share that story because I think if we're honest, most times, I think oftentimes, we know what, we, what to do, or we, we have an idea of the direction we should take, but we just don't want to do it. We know what we should do, but we just don't want to do it. Let me give you an example. I'm not going to read all the passages. Go home and Google it. I promise it's there if you don't take my word for it. But in the New Testament alone, for example, there are four times where the New Testament explicitly tells us what God's will for us is to do. Four times. The first one is that it is God's will that we believe in Christ. In other words, that it is God's will that we don't just believe that God exists or that Jesus was a good person, but that Jesus actually is the Son of God. He is the one that gives us grace, hope, and forgiveness, and we have to repent of our sins and trust in him to experience that, that we believe in, in, in the Son of God. That is, that is the first thing. Second, 
second thing that we see in the New Testament is that it is God's will for us to give thanks in everything, both in the good and the bad, that we should be a thankful people. And if we're honest, we're not always thankful. Like we fall short in that category, but it is God's will. A third thing we're told is that followers of Christ are to submit and doing right, that we should care that as we talked about in our previous series that we were in most of this year in Masterclass in 1 Corinthians, that it's not just about doing whatever you can do, but it's about laying aside your rights and your freedoms for the good of others, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you should care about how you live, not to earn God's favor, but simply out of love and respect and helping other people see and experience Jesus. And then fourthly, we're told that it is God's will that we abstain from sexual sin, that God had created sex to be a good and a life-giving thing, but we will only experience it to the way that we're supposed to, to the, to the life-giving ways that we can experience in the covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. So there are things that God is clear about, but oftentimes it's not that he's not clear. We just want God to agree with us. Like if we're being honest, maybe we're facing a situation and we might know or we might have been told what we should, what we should do, but we don't want to do it. And so we kind of run circles or we kind of justify. Basically, it's not that we're concerned about what God wants. We just want God to do what God, what we want to do. And following Jesus, we have to just be, we have to be honest and admit that sometimes we simply have to trust Jesus and walk with him. That if he is God and he is calling us to have faith and he knows everything that we don't know, just like if you were to talk to a counselor about anything that you were going through, Sometimes they tell you difficult things and you actually have to trust that what they're saying is good. And when it comes to following Jesus, sometimes that is it, what it is for us, that we simply have to trust and follow what his will for us in that situation is. Uh, where do we think he is leading us? To be clear, I think sometimes we get this wrong because we have multiple options. Maybe sometimes we have multiple good options. And if we, th- we think, if I don't choose the right one, then everything's messed up. And that's not what God has for us. God invites us to follow him, to love him, and to love others. But we have to trust him in that. Again, my experience, oftentimes, it's not that we're not sure what we're supposed to do. We just don't do, we don't do, we, we don't, what am I trying to say? We don't want to do what, we, what God is actually leading us to do. He is calling us to be honest so that we can experience healing, listen to what he actually has to say, and do what he says to do. And all of this it goes back to what Christmas is for us, this season of Advent is for us. That this wonderful counselor, that Christmas is a reminder that this wonderful counselor cares, and we know that he cares because he, because he came. It doesn't, honor, it doesn't mean that whatever you're dealing with, maybe it's a sin struggle, uh, shame, embarrassment, maybe you're in a difficult situation, you're not sure what to do. We may not always know why, but we do, not, we do know it's not because he doesn't care, Because if he didn't care, he wouldn't have come. He is the wonderful counselor. And the gospel is that Jesus is king, that because of Jesus, we have nothing to prove and no one to impress. It's not about us trying hard. It's not about us doing a bunch of good things. It's simply about being honest and accepting our stance as broken and fallen people who have a redeemer who came to give his life for us. And we trust and we follow him in response to what he has done. And it's an invitation, no matter what you have done, or maybe no matter what has been done to you, that all of us, all of us are welcomed at Christ's table, that all of us can receive the grace and mercy of God through the sacrifice that he came to do through Christmas and ultimately Easter when he defeated death and resurrected on our behalf. That's the gospel. It's not about us. It's about him. And I say all that to say, I would would close with this kind of point. This is really the bottom line, especially when we talk about God being a wonderful counselor, and that's this, that Jesus is not an impersonal force, but a personal God. 
Jesus is not some faraway, distant thing out there, but he's actually a personal God who came. I'm reminded of Christina and I just started, neither one of us have really watched many of the Star Wars movies, and so we started watching them recently. So we watched episode four a couple of weeks ago. We watched episode five last night, and so I'm going to butcher this for you Star Wars fans, but I've watched two of them, so like, give me some grace here. But they talk about the Force, right, and how they describe it, and it's kind of based off kind of Eastern religion, religious ideas that it's kind of this impersonal thing that you just kind of trust and believe, and hopefully it happens, and if you get it right, then things go in your favor and don't go into the dark side. Like don't do all these things. And we understand like that's not who God is. God is not some God who's out there that you need to be trained to, f- to find and to, and to do all these things, that he's a personal God who cares. And we know that because he came. In other words, I think of it this way. I don't know how many of you, probably all of you have had a negative experience with a call center right? That you, I, I, let me just explain to you for a second, maybe just to get this off my chest. We've had, we, my wife and I have two kids, and both of our experiences with insurance after having our kids have been nightmares. So when our first was born, Finley, uh, we got a bill in the mail a few weeks later for $10,500. I'm like, what? And so oh, for, the, for the entire year until Christmas Eve, eight months later, literally Christmas Eve morning, I had spent over 60 hours on the phone, I'm not even kidding you, trying to get this thing fixed. And they're like, we're not sure what the problem is. And basically, here's what the amount that you should owe. So you go ahead and pay this. And then we fix the rest of it. We'll fix it. I'm like, I'm not doing that. And I was getting calls from debt collectors and all that sort of thing. So then I stopped, right? It took over a year. till finally, one day, we get a bill in the mail for the correct amount. And I'm like, this is awful. And then finally, and then Roman comes, our second, last year, he was born. Apparently, this happens every once in a while or when your child is born, your insurance gets canceled. And so we didn't know this at the time. I paid the, the bill, whatever. And then like two months later, I get another bill for $900. And I'm like, what is this? And so I call them. This time only took nine months. So, you know, we made some progress over the phone. Long story short, right? Long story short, our insurance is canceled. They didn't f- figure it out. And they found that I had paid uh, the, the premium on the previous insurance, and then all fixed, whatever. But what I, both times, I'm frustrated. And I'm calling them. And I'm like, here's what I need to talk to. Here's the code. Like, here's what happens because they never believe you. And I saw so all this time on the phone, every time I'm just thinking, like, if I could just sit down, go in somewhere and just sit somewhere for two hours, like face to face, we could get this figured out. Because you keep having me call and talk to this person and this person, like, it's going nowhere. And some of us view God like that. We view God like a call center. And we hope that maybe today the lines are open or he's not too busy and we can talk to him. And that is not who he is. God is a God of infinite strength and power and glory and love that he sent Jesus so that we could have personal and direct access to him. And the invitation is not just for people who are good. The invitation is not for people who have it all together, that he came for all of us, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, but simply because he loves us, that Jesus is not an impersonal force, but a personal God, a wonderful counselor who is inviting us into a relationship with him. The question is, what do we need to be honest with him about? What are the areas in in our lives that we need to experience healing? And how can we trust and follow him in the midst of those things? Remember, that Jesus is not an impersonal force. He is a personal God. He is the wonderful counselor who has come. Let's pray.